Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is an honor, and it is a double honor in that I'm able to share with you guys and to talk about one of my favorite... Um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. No, 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 it's not you. It's your recording. Yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> All right, well, I consider it a double honor to be able to speak with you guys about... Um, apologetics, defending the Christian worldview, and I consider it a double honor in that I'm able to, uh, to share and continue on the legacy of my favorite Christian philosopher and Christian thinker, Dr. Greg Bonson. Um, Dr. Greg Bonson uh, wrote a, I kind of I call him the Tupac of Christian apologetics. Now, it sounds random. If you remember Tupac, the rapper, you know, that godly rapper, um, um, he, when he passed away in 1996, um, he, they were, he was still releasing albums. And I was like, oh, I could have sworn he died last year, and he's got like three new albums. And it's kind of the same thing. Dr. Bonson uh, was a Christian philosopher. He was part of the um, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he died in 1995. And um, presuppositional apologetics, which we're going to go over in, in just a moment, has kind of um, gained a little bit more popularity in recent times. And so Dr. Bonson's name is, is being thrown around uh, in the in various apologetic circles. And so uh, there was a book that came out, and I've read all of Dr. Bonson's book, and I was like, I've never heard of Against All Opposition before. It's like, how did he write this book? And so actually, it was a book that is a transcription of a teaching series that Dr. Bonson did. And it uh, was put out by American Vision, who um, Gary DeMar is the president. So Gary DeMar didn't write the book, but um, he is responsible for uh, the transcription and things like this. Now, a little bit about the transcriptions, okay? 99.9% .9 of the things that I've learned from, from Greg Bonson has not been from his books, okay? I have three kids. I don't have time to be sitting and reading like, oh, oh, oh look at that. <laughs> yeah, I, this, this doesn't exist when you have three kids. You can't just, you know? So my, most of my learning, um, presuppositional apologetics and theology has been through audio. I, I listen and I learn. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Bonson Project, um, but recently all of Dr. Bonson's lectures have been, made, have been made available for free on Sermon Audio, and they're all categorized. I, have, I, I traveled here. It took me like eight, nine hours to get here. My car became a seminary on wheels, okay? Uh, the awesome thing about Dr. Bonson is not so much his books. They're great, and you can learn so much from them, but it, it has been his teaching. He is, was an excellent teacher, very down-to-earth guy, but very intellectually rigorous and a great um, proponent of the Word of God. I mean, he sought to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and really push that truth in the area of Christian apologetics. So 
I highly recommend not only the book that I'm going to be covering, but the sermon audio uh, on sermon audio. Check out the Bonson Project. There are hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of theology lectures, philosophy lectures, apologetics lectures, dealing with various cultural issues, and that has helped me um, really form my worldview. It is, it's, it's contributed greatly to the way I look at the world, looking at everything through a lens um, and being sensitive of the fact that everyone else has a lens, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. So um, when we talk about apologetics or presuppositional apologetics more specifically, uh, you need to understand, this is key, it is a worldview apologetic. It is, it, is a, it is a defense of the Christian faith that forces you to be cognizant and aware of how you see the world, how you interpret the world, the role of the authority of God's word in, in that whole process, and the fact that every unbeliever you are going to engage has their own worldview. And the problem with their worldview is that they are not standing upon the only authority that can make a worldview reasonable, logical, and even intelligible, okay? So this is what presuppositionalism is all about. I mean, I, unfortunately, presuppositional apologetics is a mouthful. When I was interviewed on a, on a YouTube, uh, someone's YouTube channel, they were like, well, how long have you been uh, a practitioner of the presuppositional apologetics? I'm like, well... We just call it presup on the internet to so <laughs> make it easy for the people who have trouble. Um, there is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, Dr. Um, Scott Oliphant, who was trying to push the, the title Covenant, Covenantal Apologetics, uh, which he tries to root the methodology in a more biblical framework, speaking in terms of covenant keepers and covenant breakers and how the Bible uh, separates two realms of, of people, people who are, are, are in covenant with God and people who have broken the covenant and when we proclaim the gospel, we are calling people back into covenant with their maker. Um, so all that out of the way, this particular book is called Against All Opposition. The title is very important, okay? Um, apologetics is not this narrow field of study where when I learn apologetics, it is only equipping me to speak to the atheist or it's only equipping me to, to speak with um, you know, this particular perspective. The Christian worldview, grounded in the Word of God, gives us a method of defending the faith that is, um, that is able to help us stand our ground against all opposition, any opposition, any realm of unbelieving thinking. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And that's what this apologetic is about. It's about standing on the wisdom of God and pointing out the foolishness of a foundation that is not grounded in God's word. So um, we can use all like fancy philosophical and theological terminology, but in reality, apologetics is for everyone. It's really, there are basic ways that we can do it, and there are more profound ways that we can do it. We can go, we can defend the faith at a surface level, and we can go much deeper. I think of apologetics as a giant iceberg, uh, in which the iceberg, the tip, is just pointing out of the water. You see the tiny little iceberg, but if you kind of dip your head underwater, there's this massive uh, foundation. It's like the tip of a mountain. And I think apologetics is like that. God has given us a method of defending the faith that caters to folks who don't have a, an in-depth background in philosophy, but at the same time, the truths of the Christian faith can cause us to plunge into the very depths of metaphysics and epistemology and all these fancy words we use to describe various realms of philosophy. So I, I want to uh, encourage you guys that when you're grounded in the scriptures, and you're grounded in proper biblical theology, and you're equipped with knowing why you believe what you believe and why the Bible is true, 
that is, that is sufficient to equip you to respond to all opposition. It doesn't matter if it's an atheist, an agnostic, a scientist, a philosopher. I get questions all the time. Well, presuppositional apologetics works great on the atheist, but what happens when you're talking to a Muslim? Well, it doesn't work then, right? They have their own authority. The, uh, the uh, people from different religions, the Mormons, have their own authority. How do we argue with them? It's the same thing. The foundation gives us the sufficient tools to respond even to uh, people who have false authorities, like the Book of Mormon, like the Quran, and things like that. Okay? So this book specifically, again, was, uh, we can say it was taught because it's a, it was a recorded lecture by Dr. Bonson. I don't want to kind of uh, spend too much time because I kind of mentioned him already, but I think that's a nice photo of him there. <laughs> okay, so um, as I said, he's part of the uh, OPC and he uh, follows what we call the Vantillian tradition. So presuppositional apologetics um, really finds its roots, of course, in scripture, right? It is based upon principles that we get from scripture. Uh, but the man who really crystallized this and really uh, brought it to the forefront was a Christian philosopher by the name of Cornelius Van Til. Um, and so folks who follow this method, we can call ourselves presuppositionalists, we can call ourselves presuppers, we can call ourselves covenantal apologists, but in reality, we, you know, folks who follow this stream of the method, we call ourselves Vantillians to, to closely associate what we're doing with the thought of Cornelius Van Til. So we won't spend too much time on him, although a very interesting uh, guy in his own right probably deserves an entire lesson uh, in and of itself. Okay? So presuppositionalism. This is the big confusing word that makes this method unattractive to the person in the pew. Right? Sounds like a curse word. What did you say? He said the P word. I don't know what that is. Presuppositionalism is very, uh, um, very complicated word. It sounds very philosophical, but in reality, it's very simple. Okay? When people ask me, what is the difference between the presuppositional approach to defending the faith and, say, um, other approaches like um, Sean McDowell or Josh McDowell or um, William Lane Craig and these, these folks, R.C. Sproul, who uh, was identified as a classical apologist, um, without getting into the details, um, the main difference is this, and I think everyone could really track with this. Evidential apologetics or classical apologetics, like William Lane Craig, R.C. Sproul, those guys, they follow what I call a bottom-up approach. Okay, So classical apologetics and evidential apologetics is a bottom-up approach. They work their way up to the conclusion, therefore, God exists. How do they get there? Well, it depends. But if we were to take, for example, the apologetic method known as classical apologetics, they use a two-step approach. You kind of think in terms of fighting, it's a one-two punch. The, one, the first punch is what we call the theistic proofs. They try to prove the existence of a God. Okay? They'll do this through various philosophical arguments, a couple of them, more fancy terminology, but these are the names they're called. Um, many classicalists will use arguments known as the cosmological argument. Right? If you're familiar with maybe someone like William Lane Craig, he used an argument to show that there must be um, an absolute beginning of the universe, an ultimate cause, an uncaused cause that caused everything else to come into existence. And so they would use arguments like that. They would use arguments uh, known as the teleological argument, looking at design in the world, showing that the world gives evidence of a designer, right? So these um, are different arguments that try to demonstrate the existence of a God. That's the first punch. 
The second punch is the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, a God exists. Which God is it? Cosmological arguments for God's existence, teleological arguments for God's existence, moral arguments for God's existence all demonstrate, if they're successful, the existence of some, as Pastor Doug Wilson said, fuzzy benevolence in the sky, right? There's not enough detail there. It's just a God exists. And the second punch is to ask the question, well, which God is this? And so the second step would be a very robust um, um, argument for the resurrection of Jesus. If a God exists, miracles are possible, right? When we look at the historical data surrounding the events of, the, uh, of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, uh, we can argue to the conclusion that it is most reasonable to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. So punch number one, a God exists. Punch number two, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, Christianity is true. Bottom-up approach. That's classical, and with some differences, what we call evidential apologetics. They like to focus on the evidence, the facts. They'd often present their case uh, in terms of presenting a scale. Which side of the scale does the evidence for Christian theism weigh? Right? They'll often say things like this. Well, you need to um, examine the evidence um, uh, objectively, right? You need to kind of throw your bias out the window and just follow the facts wherever they go. That's more of the evidential line, okay? Top, I'm sorry, bottom-up approach, okay? Now, presuppositional apologetics is completely different. It does not focus on evidences and facts because the presuppositionalist really takes seriously that the issue between the believer and unbeliever are not the facts. The issue between the believer and the unbeliever is not the evidence. The question is, who is interpreting the facts and the evidence correctly, right? Facts don't speak for themselves. That's a very, you know, popular phrase. You know, when you look at like uh, fossils, you know, people like to argue evolution. Fossils don't pop out of the ground and be like, oh, you know, this, you know, this is what I am. You know, I'm an evolu evolutionary link. It's not what happens, okay? Uh, when you look at the whole debate between the age of the universe and the age of the earth, you know, uh, when you're looking at rock layers and things, rock layers don't have like, you know, the, the, the years of how old they are and when they were formed, right? The, the issue between, say, the evolutionist and the uh, creationist is not the evidence. It's wrong to ask who has more evidence for their position. Both sides have the same data. The difference is who is interpreting the data correctly. That's the main issue. And so presuppositionalists, don't focus so much on the facts as much as the philosophy of fact. Who is looking at the facts through the proper lens? Okay? It is a top-down approach. We do not argue step one, step two, step three. Therefore, most likely, it is very reasonable and rational to believe that a God exists and that it's very rational and highly probable that that God raised Jesus from the dead. I'm sorry, but when I read the scriptures, the scriptures speak with a much stronger certainty and confidence than what we hear coming out of a lot of these uh, specific arguments that some Christians give. Okay? Now, again, those arguments are they're useful, um, but I think there's a better way. Okay? The presuppositionalist says we do not start from the bottom and work our way up. We start from the top. God is not a hypothesis to be tested. God is the creator and foundation of everything we do. And so a presuppositionalist will argue from the top down. 
We start with the God who has revealed himself in Scripture and has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and we argue that if you reject his revelation, you're standing on sand. You see the difference? You have to ask yourself the question then. Which method honors God the most? One that treats God as a hypothesis to be proven, or one that says, I'm going to stand with God, let God be true, and every man a liar. And we're going to stand on that foundation, and we're going to say with Paul, where is the, the debater of this age? Right? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The wisdom of the world we stand in so much awe of, right? When we go to university, when you hear that really you know, cool, uh, popular scholar on YouTube somewhere, we can stand in awe of how smart these people are. Right? And they are. I'm not saying these people are, you know, they're not smart. There are very educated unbelievers out there. But I don't care if you have 20 PhDs. If you're not standing on the firm rock of God's word, you're a fool. That's what the Bible says. Now, to call someone a fool is not to call them uneducated. They're pretty smart fools out there. But they're fools nonetheless because that's what the Bible says. Okay? Biblical apologetics is an apologetic that believes what the Bible says about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the world. A biblical apologetic is an apologetic that forces us to see the unbeliever as God sees him, not as the unbeliever sees himself. When the unbeliever says, well, there's no evidence for your God. I don't know if your God exists. Does the Bible describe the unbeliever that way? No. So now, now I'm, in a, I'm in a dilemma. Do I believe what the unbeliever says about himself, or do I believe what God has said about the unbeliever? Now, as a Christian, I don't know about you, but human beings are self-deceived. We are wicked. <laughs> the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? I'm going to side with the one who created the heart and knows it inside and out. And that's the same God who says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and all that can be known about God has been made known through what has been made, such that men are without excuse. So which side, which, which should inform our apologetic? What the world says, God is a hypothesis that needs to be proved. Or what the Bible says, you're the sinner who stands before God. He doesn't have to prove himself to you. You need to answer to him. Now, a lot of people within the apologetic world who disagree with this methodology will hear what I'm saying, and they'll just say, that's just pious gobbledygook. It sounds nice. You get like other Christians excited, like, yeah, the God's word. It, I'm not trying to be pious at all. It's the facts. If the Bible is the word of God, this is how we should be approaching the unbeliever as God has revealed him, not as the, what the unbeliever thinks about himself. And I think out of all the apologetic methods, I think presuppositionalism does the best job in doing that consistently. It really is an issue of defending the faith in a way that is consistent with God's word. Now, real quick, because I know this is being recorded and the Lord knows who will watch this and message me later. Are you telling me that if we're not presuppositionalists, we're doing apologetics wrong? Well, that's kind of what I'm saying, but that's, there's more there, okay? Um, listen, as the, as the famous saying goes, God can strike a blow with a crooked stick. I'm not denying the impact of the ministries of Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, William Lane Craig, R.C. Sproul. Of course, God, is, God speaks and uses all of those. What I'm calling us to do is to, to the best of our ability, when we defend the faith, let's do so in a way that is consistent that does not bow to the standards of the world, that does not bow to the standards of the secular universities, that demand that if we're going to prove that God exists, it has to be this way, which caters to their autonomy, to their standards, which we know the Bible says they have a truth and they're suppressing it. 
So we need to be consistent. All right, well, that's what presuppositionalism is all about, and I get all excited about it, so I'm sorry. Uh, but um, the following slides, this kind of thing that I'll be talking about today is based off this book here. And uh, this is a description that the book gives of, uh, for itself. It's on the back, uh, uh, the back side of the book, and I thought it was uh, appropriate here. It says here, against all opposition lays out the definitive apologetic model to help believers understand the biblical method of defending the faith. Now, those are key words. I, kind of, I don't know if you can see it, but um, I have them kind of highlighted. They're a little different color than all the other letters there. Um, and that's important because the Bible doesn't just simply teach us go and defend. It actually tells us how we should do it. And I think that should really be an important aspect of how we go about engaging unbelievers. Okay? Make sense? All right? You guys tracking with me? All right, good. All right, so presuppositional apologetics, this is my favorite definition of it. There are big, complicated, philosophical you know, definitions. Presuppositional apologetics is an apologetic method that was formulated by Cornelius Van Sick. Boring. There, my favorite description is uh, in a book uh, that is actually about apologetic methodology. But when it actually explains presuppositionalism, this stood out to me the most because it is using the words of Scripture. Right? If, a, if presuppositional apologetics is biblical, the definition of it should be wrapped up in some principles of Scripture that are super important. So presuppositionalism or presuppositional apologetics is this. And I, you probably, I don't even mind staying on this slide so you can write this down. This is super important. It is a method of defending the Christian faith that seeks to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Check the last part out. Even the thoughts of the unbeliever. Isn't that cool? Apologetics, biblically, is not just bringing every one of our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It is to show the unbeliever that unless he submits his thinking to the obedience of Christ, his thinking falls apart. He has no foundation. Okay? So that's basically what presuppositional apologetics is all about. It's a consistent application of this biblical principle right here. Okay? Another definition that I really appreciate is uh, first time I heard it was from Dr. Oliphant over there at Westminster. He said that presuppositional apologetics is the application of Christian theology to unbelief. It, it is interesting. So we tend to think of like apologetics over here and theology over there. So apologetics is what we do to those people outside the church, but theology, we don't really talk to the, about theology to them over there. That's what we do in the church. And so you have this kind of this dichotomy, right, where we can talk about the Bible being the inerrant word of God, right? And then in the outside, we can be like, well, perhaps the Bible may have some contradictions, but the core is there. You see the, you see the inconsistency, right? We can, we can lift our hands and in, with tears worship God that we know and experience in our everyday life. And then when we speak to the unbeliever, we speak of a high probability that he may exist. You see the inconsistency? And that, that shouldn't be the case, right? We are called to biblical consistency. The God who is a living reality in my life and in fellowship with unbelievers is the same God I am defending when I'm speaking to the unbeliever, whether he's an atheist, whether he's a Mormon, whether he's a Jehovah's Witness or whoever. It doesn't matter. That consistency must be the case. How unfaithful it is to the Lord we adore on Sunday and then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it is highly probable. It is most rational to believe. The evidence seems to lean in this direction. Uh, you know, it's just a, a, a big inconsistency there. Um, I had a friend, I won't mention this apologist's name, but this apologist was very well known, and he uh, is one of the leading defenders of the historical uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And he was invited to a church 
uh, out on, uh, well, now I'm from North Carolina, out on Long Island, which is actually here. I'm here now, so I don't want to mix that up. Um, and one of the, the, the people in the service who was listening to this case was a former student of mine. And they were disturbed by the message. The evidence for the resurrection, this person presented the resurrection as though we may be mistaken about it, but the evidence seems to strongly support. And here you have this church packed at the seams, looking to have a firm foundation and strong words to speak to the, their unbelieving friends and family. And here you have a Christian leader speaking about the resurrection of Jesus as a high probability, right? Uh, they were actually, there were actually people grumbling in the congregation. They were uncomfortable with that. Now again, I get it. I know how history is done and I know why the person says what they said and I strongly disagree. We come from different perspectives. But I think that's not the apologetic that the Bible gives us. When we are, when we are teaching people to defend the faith and we're declaring the authority of God, um, not just in the house of God, but his lordship over everything, in the scriptures, there is a very powerful confidence that apparently is lacking in even many seminaries, uh, which is it's remarkable. So again, it's, it's a call to consistency. Let us stand with confidence, the same confidence that the writers of the New Testament are standing on. Let us stand on the, on the confidence that we see all throughout the Old Testament with the prophets, right? So it's a consistent application. What Christian theology teaches us about the nature of man, the effects of sin upon man's mind, the fact that man is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, the fact that God has unmistakably, unmistakably and unambiguously revealed himself such that men are, I love the Greek word, anapologetus. It literally means you're without an apologetic. That's how clear the existence of God is. Right? And then what happens? We have Christians, well, maybe if we can just uh, examine the evidence. Look, there's such a timidity that we often, we need to stand confidently, not pridefully, but confidently and with certainty that what God has said is true and we are able to defend it and proclaim it. Okay? All right. Jude chapter 1, verse 3, an awesome verse for, uh, and you'll notice the verse missing from these slides. I purposely left it out, and it is the famous 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Every single talk on apologetics has it. It is an excellent passage. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you, right? As yet doing so with gentleness and respect. Excellent passage. However, I really like Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, look at, look at the words, look at the, the, the urgency in, in, the, in, the, in the words of Jude here. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he wanted to write about something that would, you know, benefit the body, right? Our common salvation, our common faith in the Lord Jesus. But he says, but I found it necessary. There was a necessity to the fact that while he wanted to speak of their common salvation, he had to shift and focus on something else. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Right? Apologetics is important. It's a shame where people, you know, well, you can't really argue people into the kingdom of God. We just need to love them. Right? That doesn't work when you're not answering the questions that the world is asking. That doesn't work. You're not going to love someone into the, If you can't argue someone into the kingdom, you're not going to love them into the kingdom. You're going to love them, but they need to be thinking, right? You have to think, right? Our, sense, our faith has to make sense. It has to actually pay the bills on the claims that it makes, right? And it's incumbent upon us as believers to know how to share that with people, 
Okay? He found it necessary. We should find it necessary too. And the interesting thing about this passage is when we think of apologetics, we typically think the atheist, you know, our friends at school, maybe that, you know, that professor, have you ever seen that movie? You know, what was that movie? God, God's not dead, you know, like an over-exaggerated situation. But some of this stuff happens, you know. And we tend to think of those people, but the context here, when he goes on to say, he, he speaks of people who have snuck into the church so that there is an external aspect to contending for the faith to those out in the world, and there's a necessity to defend the faith within the context of the body when false doctrine arises, right? This is so important. When people ask me, what is the best way to prepare myself to defend the faith? And people think I give this answer because, of course, you know, of course, you know, he's a Christian, he's going to say this. But seriously, you are in the best position to defend the faith when you know the living daylights out of the Bible. 99.9% .9 of the attacks upon the Christian faith are based off of misrepresentations of what the Bible teaches. When I remember, I remember, um, I remember walking out of a stop and shop. All right, I looked like an idiot. I had like bags. I was like walking. I was like, oh my goodness, my wife sent me to some suicide mission to the supermarket. I had to get a bunch of stuff. Okay, and all of a sudden, a, a man approached me. He says, "Do you have a minute?" I was like, "Really?" This guy's asking me. I got like, uh, you know, I was like, "Sure." And I brought my stuff in, and then I came, and I was like, "What? What's? What seems to be the problem?" And he goes, "Well, you know." But the Bible speaks, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> the Bible speaks of a father God. But did you know that the Bible also speaks of a mother God? And he's like, did you know that? And I was like, inside me, I was like, it's on. He doesn't even know, you know. Uh, but all of a sudden, all of a, all of a sudden, all of my reading of the philosophy and the arguments and the logic out the window. My encounter with this cultist, they're actually part of a, a, a cult. Um, I don't remember the name, but they, they're here on Long Island, okay? Um, I, I ended up arguing with him for the hour and a half on the basics of the gospel and salvation. Of course, a unique feature of most cults and most non-Christian religions is that salvation is works-based, okay? Uh, he taught that you had to be baptized in order to be saved. I was like, are you, are you telling me that if I repented right now of my sins genuinely, and we were about to walk across the street to get baptized in the puddle over there, and I get hit by a truck right, right before we got there. I'm going to hell? He's like, well, you said it was necessary. By the way, he believed you also had to follow God's law perfectly. And I was like, do you follow God's law perfectly? He says, well, I try. No, no, no. Trying and doing it is not the same. If you are trying, that means you are attempting, but admittedly failing. So here you are, a lost person, declaring to me that I'm lost unless I believe your gospel. You see the problem? Okay? Now, the guy's done either way. If you have to follow God's law perfectly, you just ask him the question. Are you following God's law perfectly? No. Okay, there's a problem. Are you following God's law perfectly? Yes. Oh, you just sinned. Because the Bible says that he who says he's without sin makes God a liar. Isn't that what the Bible says in the first or second John or something like that? Right? The Bible's declared that we're all sinners. Right? So I went on and on, basic Christian theology. The key to successfully being prepared to give a reason for the hope is to know what that hope is. You need to be grounded in the faith once for all delivered. That body of Christian truth that is given to us in God's word. Know the word, live the word, walk in the word, memorize the word. Be a sponge, absorb the word. When a cultist or an unbeliever 
pokes you, that juice starts oozing out of the sponge, right? That, that juice, if we can call it juice, should be the Word of God. That you are so filled with the Word of God that you start breaking out in hives in the presence of error. And you respond like Jesus did when he was tempted by the devil, right? He responded to the temptations of the devil with Scripture. We need to follow the example of the Master, okay? All right, so Jude 1.3, excellent, excellent passage. And here's the confidence that we have. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses uh, 20 through 21. Where is the wise? Where is the, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, here's a little secret. This is a rhetorical question, <laughs> okay? Ready? Right? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes! <laughs> He's made foolish the wisdom of the world, okay? And we need to have confidence in the wisdom of God and not, be, not stand in timidity in the presence of educated unbelievers or people who declare themselves to be men of science, right? Doesn't mean anything. Science requires the Christian worldview. We wish I had time to go into that, okay? You stand on a very firm foundation. And, you, and the beauty of presuppositional apologetics is that you will be deadly in defending the faith the more educated you are, but the basic tools that this method gives you equips you enough that you can still destroy the foundation of an unbeliever's uh, worldview. And that, that, that language of destruction, like, well, Eli, that's really strong, right? Well, you tell me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, Paul seemed to use the words very strongly. He says, we destroy arguments. I want to do that, <laughs> right? Not for intellectual pride, but to destroy every thought that does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, right? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. My own thoughts, which means my godly life is also an apologetic. I remember when I was taking apologetics in seminary, there I had to, we had to read this, uh, I think it was called the Popular Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. And there was this really interesting article entitled Incarnational Apologetics. I was like, I've never heard that before. Incarnation. What does that mean in, in, theologically? What, 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 are we, what are we talking about when we speak of the incarnation of Christ? When the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. Incarnation in fleshness. God became man and dwelt among us, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14, you guys are aware of that, right? Okay, incarnational apologetics is a method of defending the faith through your life. Now again, we're good old reform folks. We don't believe that our works save us. Our works don't make us right before God. But we do good works out of obedience to a God who has saved us by grace, through faith, and that life also functions as a witness to the world that is coupled not just with a beautiful outward appearance, oh, that person's so nice and sweet, but you are a person of depth and knowledge of God's word, and you are able to speak, not just, you know, people say, I don't need to defend the faith arguing with people. I just live the Christian life, right? You ever hear that? That's just the ninny way of saying, I don't want to actually confront people. I'll just defend the faith by how I live, you know? Uh, the problem with that is that there are Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, and people from every stripe who are really nice. Right? What you see are people doing nice things. Right? You have the data. You have the facts. But who is interpreting the facts correctly? How do I distinguish between a 
kind and loving Mormon and a kind and loving Christian, if not the message that they're proclaiming. Mormonism does not have a saving gospel. Christianity does. You couple that with a transformed life, it strengthens your apologetic. Okay? Very, very important. Now, getting to the, the book portion uh, here, and we'll, I'll fly through these, uh, just a couple of these. We won't go through all of them. But um, in the book, Against All Opposition, the beauty of this book is at the end of each chapter, there are study questions. I like that. You ever read a chapter, you're just kind of at the end, you're like, I don't remember anything. They just went through, like, it was interesting while you were walking through the pages, and then you're just like, I don't remember a thing, okay? So the beauty of this book is it has study questions. And so what I was trying to do was to take the study questions and walk through some of them, uh, provide some answers, and maybe expand on, on some of the answers. And, and the great thing about this is that the chapters kind of cover a presuppositional methodology. So the questions really touch on some of the important highlights of that method. So I know I'm running out of time real quick, but I'm gonna, I'll jump through uh, maybe uh, two or three of them. I think they're uh, good uh, examples here. So um, in apologetics, we often talk about the, the relationship between faith and reason. This is the first chapter of the book, and so questions are kind of related to, uh, to faith and things like that, okay? By the way, faith is a really important concept um, because the world has a very interesting on a very interesting idea of what they think faith is to us, right? You have, I have science, you have faith, right? You know, there's, as though like science is this thing based on facts and you guys are just the nice religious people skipping to church on Sundays, right? You guys are in like Lulu La La Land, right? Uh, faith is just kind of this, uh, uh, this feeling, right? We're just really passionate about what we believe, okay? That's not what faith is biblically, okay? And it's very important within an apologetic context not to allow the unbeliever to foist upon you their faulty, unbiblical definition of faith and throw it on you as though that's what you believe. Well, you believe that, don't you? No? I love that. I love the, the no is my favorite. I remember there was one guy, he was trying to set me up, right? He was like, so you believe God can do anything, right? And I was like, nope. He was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, God can't, do, God can't do literally everything. He's like, what do you think? You believe God is all powerful? I'm like, he sure is. You're telling me God can't do anything? Like he, there's some things he can't do? I'm like, yeah, the Bible says God can't lie. And he had to step back, and now he had to reformulate what he was about to say uh, in more in line with what I believe. Okay? In presuppositional methodology, that is called an external critique. He is not critiquing our perspective in light of the assumptions we make. He is foisting upon us something external to what we believe and faulting us for it. Can't do that. That's called an external critique. You want to critique the Christian? You do an internal critique. Assume that Christianity is true and demonstrate that on its truth, it crumbles. And I welcome that. I did a debate with uh, that, that atheist gentleman, Eric Murphy, when he finally got this issue of uh, internal critique. He says, all right, I think I get it. All right, well, okay, so suppose Christianity is true. Look at the Trinity. God is three in one? It's a contradiction. So if Christianity is true and you believe in the Trinity, and the Trinity is a contradiction, then Christianity is false. I'm like, congratulations, you did that correctly, right? You assumed the truth of what I believe and tried to show that on the basis of that, there are problems with my view. The problem is, you didn't define the Trinity correctly, here's the proper definition, right? And so, how do I navigate the conversation with an atheist? I had to teach him theology. I had to know what I believed. It was literally, we talked about the Trinity for like 20 minutes, okay? So again, to survive the internal critique that the unbeliever gives, we must know what we believe and how the doctrines of what the scriptures teach, how they fit together. It's so, so important, okay? All right, let's, get, uh, let's go through a, a question or two here. 
All right. So we're not going to go through all these. There are seven in all. But uh, the first one, I think, is, is a good one here. Uh, let's take a look at that first question here. So what separates the believer and the unbeliever? Is it faith? Is what separates the believer and the unbeliever that one has faith and one doesn't? Right? Well, the answer is what? No, it doesn't, right? Who has faith? Both. You better believe it, right? Well, I don't have faith. I remember this a debate. I, you might be familiar with this debate, Anthony. I have confidence. <laughs> I have confidence in the data and the blah, 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 blah. And so the Christians who are presuppositionalists, they point out, so you have confidence? And you're like, yes. Confidence? They're like, yes. Confidence. Confidence. Co-fide. Confide, the Latin, with faith. It literally means with faith. You have faith, right? The reality is we both have faith. The question is, who has a faith that can, that can be a foundation for everything else we say? Who has a faith that can ground everything that we do? Is it the unbeliever or the believer? Spoiler alert. It's not the unbeliever. Okay, so spoiler. Okay? So the believer and the unbeliever have different worldviews. As Bonson said in the book uh, Against All Opposition, he says what separates you are the underlying worldviews. It's the philosophy that we hold, not the facts that we're disagreeing over. Right? The unbeliever and the believer have the same facts. The difference is different lenses. They are using the wrong prescriptions. And therefore, when they look at the data, that's skewed. Okay? And we want to invite the unbeliever to wear the lens that God has given us. When we look at the world the way and interpret it in the way that God has interpreted the world for us, then everything comes into clear focus. Very important. All right, I'll cover one question here, and then we'll wrap things up. I know I'm, I'm, I, I talk so much. I'm so sorry. Are you guys with me, though? You guys are awake? Okay. All right, good. All right. I try to, I, I'm not Italian, but I try to move my hands to, you know, to keep people uh, engaged. I don't know why that's a, if I sounded super boring but move my hands around, does it, do you guys still, you know? All right. Okay. So, uh, number two, to have faith often means what to unbelievers? This is very important because I think, as an apologist, as a, as a Christian who is trying to engage with unbelievers, I think it's very important that we make it our business to be familiar with what unbelievers think about what we believe, right? Oftentimes, when we share our faith with unbelievers, it can really sound like we're talking to a brick wall. Now, some of that is spiritual blindness for sure, right? A hardness of heart, right? We, we believe that God must remove the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh. We do not convince people through rational arguments that Christianity is true. There is a supernatural element that's involved in all of this. Okay? Greg Bonson, I mean, I love the, I love the guy. He had a great way of, of, of uh, summarizing things and little witty little sayings. He says that our job as apologists is not to convert the unbeliever. Our job is to shut his mouth. It's God who does the converting. We give an answer for the reason for the hope that's in us, so much so that there's nothing they can say. And then it's God's job to transform the heart. That's a, that's a very important recognition because if you think it's your job to convert someone, apologetics will be impossible for you. You'll be depressed. You'll be sharing your faith. People will laugh in your face and you think it's your fault. You have to recognize that people laughed at Jesus. People laughed at the apostles. It is part of the Christian walk to be laughed at because what is the wisdom of God to us is foolishness to the world, right? But we shouldn't be swayed by that, right? Of course, a spiritually blind person is going to think that this is foolishness. Why, is, why should that sway me, right? My job is to shut the mouth of the unbeliever and pray that God does that supernatural work, right? All by his grace. 
Okay, so to have faith means what? Okay, Bonson kind of described it this way. Okay, unbelievers think that to have faith means to let your emotions run wild and turn off your brain. So for many unbelievers, faith is just, is just another form of anti-intellectualism, right? And faith is just, you know, it's just blind faith or believing something without sufficient evidence. Right? You'll often hear people, even in debates, well, you have faith, which means, and then they fill in the blank with an erroneous, completely unbiblical and non-Christian definition that apparently we hold to, right? <laughs> Okay, faith is believing something you know ain't true. Nope, that's definitely not what I believe about faith, right? As a matter of fact, biblical faith is rarely, if ever, the idea that we believe that God exists. But faith isn't even that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God and calls anyone who rejects God a fool, right? So faith in the Bible already assumes God. Faith is a relational trust. It is a trust in a reliable source, right? And we see that sort of faith, not in atheistic Jews in the wilderness in the Old Testament. They knew God was there. But did they have faith? Did they have a trust in Yahweh in the Old Testament? And as you see, through the pages of the Old Testament, not so much, <laughs> okay, with some exceptions, right? So unbelievers often see faith as anti-intellectual. And we need to be able to, in, throughout the course of conversation, correct those misapprehensions. One of the best ways to defend the faith is to know the faith. Dr. Walter Martin, who was the original Bible answer man, who was the uh, founder of CRI, the Christian Research Institute, um, he often gave the example of um, identifying counterfeit money. He says, uh, speaking with false gospels, right? There are gospels out there, the Mormons, the Jehovah's, all these guys have different views. But he says, one of the key things that when people study counterfeit money, they don't acquaint themselves with all the different forms of counterfeits out there they become so familiar with the genuine bill that when the false ones come their way, they recognize it. So the key, right, to doing apologetics and standing on the truth is being so familiar with the truth that you are able to identify error when it comes. And not only identify it, in identifying it, speaking out, speaking truth, combating falsehood with truth. And that's what we're called to do. What does that look like? It's going to be different. God has put different people in your lives. There are different people that maybe you might talk to that I don't. I'm in the weird internet world, so there are all sorts of loonies in the internet, so I have to deal with people that are very different than someone you might deal with, you know, talking to someone at work or talking to your neighbor or something like that. But regardless of the wide variety of opposition that we might confront, the Bible calls us to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us, yet doing so with gentleness and respect, which basically hashes out to when you defend the faith, don't be a jerk, right? Genuinely love the people that you're speaking with. So there's so much more. I didn't even scratch the surface. I, I, I wanted one more? Okay, well, okay, well, okay. So here we go. So uh, here's another question. So when unbelievers charge that Christianity is irrational, what do they mean? How many people have heard that claim? Christianity, religion is irrational, right? I'm, yeah, well, what do you mean by that? Well, they can mean many things, but there are two a very important thing is that people mean by that when they say that Christianity is irrational. Number one, many people think that Christianity is illogical. In other words, there are things within the Christian faith that are just contradictory. They don't make sense. And some of them are really silly and can be uh, corrected by knowing your theology. And others, not so silly. They actually hit us very hard. How can a loving, compassionate God allow my daughter to die of leukemia? How could he have done that? Is God able to heal her? Yeah. Why didn't he? He must be evil, right? Or he must not exist because apparently there's a God who's unable to, do, to, to heal. 
How can you believe in a God who allows hundreds of people to die in earthquakes around the world? Right? You can't get rid of that objection with free will. Right? People say, well, God gave people free will, and so people freely choose to disobey him, and that's why evil happens in the world. Sure, that might make sense with some things, but what about the earthquake? Whose free will caused the earthquake that took the lives of all these people? Whose free will uh, uh, caused this person to die of cancer or that person to die of, of whatever disease you can, you can label? Right? That's a very, that hits you hard because we've experienced people that we've lost because of suffering and things like, and not just people dying. Why do some people die in such excruciating and, and seemingly senseless ways? Right? Someone being murdered in the woods, crying out for help, and no one's there to help the person. The, the murderer gets away with it. How can there be a good, loving God that allows that to happen? How would you answer that? People think that's illogical. If God is good, surely he would not allow that to happen. It happens, therefore God is not good, and because you believe in a good God, a good God doesn't exist. Christianity's false. That hits a little closer to home. Right? So when people say Christianity is irrational, they often mean by that there's, there's some kind of contradiction. And that's why you need to know your Christian theology, because we don't have time to go into it now, but Christian theology answers that question. Knowing the nature of God and the nature of man and the nature of God's decrees and eternal purposes as to why he permits and allows certain things, that will help inform how to answer that question. So very, very important. And the last point here. When people call Christianity irrational, they often say something to the effect that it lacks evidence. Okay? Now, of course, you need to ask the question. Right? Someone says, give me evidence for the Christian faith. What do you mean by evidence? That is a fun question. Because what you'll see, oftentimes, the answer that you get, you see their bias. Well, evidence is when we could observe, right? They'll, they'll use words like the buzzwords, observe, repeatability, scientific demonstration, right? That's silly. Someone says, uh, demonstrate to me that God exists scientifically. And I have a, a Christian apologist friend. He, he responds this way. He says, why would I want to do a silly thing like that? <laughs> demonstrate that God exists scientifically. Now, why would I want to do that? You see? Now, this is a fun, fun response because in reality, um, in logic, it's making what you call a category mistake. Okay? Um, science is a method of investigating the natural world. Your question, question, ready? So, so when we investigate the natural world, we, we observe, right? We test, we repeat, put things in, you, you can picture in your mind a person with like a, a lab coat with colorful potions, right? <laughs> so I think of science, I think of someone pouring potions in test tubes, all right? Okay? And we, we deal with the observability. So question, question. Can you see God? Raise your hand if you could see God. Good, no one's a heretic in here. Great, okay? You can't see God. So what they're asking, the, what they count as evidence, they're using a method of investigation that does not apply to the being that is under discussion. It's like asking to find rubber in the sand using a metal detector. I'm sorry, you're not going to find rubber in the sand using a metal detector. In like fashion, science deals with the observable world. Why, why is that the only way that God can be demonstrated, demonstrated right? He's assuming that the only way to demonstrate things is we have to observe it. But clearly, there are countless examples of things that we cannot observe, yet we know are there. And so when someone says Christianity lacks evidence, you need to let that person define what he means by that. Because what you'll find is that there is a bias lurking in his definition. Right? The only way to prove something is through observation. Why does he say that? Because he doesn't believe there's supernatural anywhere. 
So if you're going to do it, you have, to, you have to prove it in a way that caters to his outlook on the world. Sorry, that doesn't work. Things are proven in certain ways depending on the nature of the thing you're trying to prove. Dr. Bonson, in a debate with an atheist, um, called this the cracker in the pantry fallacy. In other words, if I was going to demonstrate to you that I had a pantry with crackers in it, how would I demonstrate that to you? There's, there's crackers in that pantry. Oh, no, there isn't. I'm like, all right, come over here. And I open up the pantry, and lo and behold, crackers, saltines, right? I demonstrated. I won against the A crackerist, right? Okay? You demonstrate the existence of the crackers by opening the pantry and observing the crackers. Why? Because crackers are the sort of things that can be observed. But if I were arguing with a person that the air pressure in this room was a certain percentage, I can't prove that to you in the same way I proved the crackers in the pantry, right? Which means that things can be proven in different ways depending on the nature of the thing we're proving. And so God is not a material being. Therefore, I'm not limited to your standard of evidence which says only physical proof counts. You would say that because you think all that exists is the physical. And so you're going to define my God out of existence by that standard. Okay? That's why it's important. What do you mean by evidence? Oh, you're a person of faith. What do you mean by faith? What do you mean? I, what do I mean by faith? You have faith. Well, I don't know what you mean by faith. There are a lot of different things people say about faith. Right? Well, I believe in science. What do you mean by science? Right? People assume science automatically kicks God out of the picture. You can't include God in your explanation. Question. Who says? Well, scientists. Which scientists? I have scientists that say you can. Oh, you mean your scientists are the only ones that we have to follow their authority because there are these scientists over here, but Christians who believe in the Bible, who have degrees in science and PhDs, and they're experts in, in uh, um, you know, um, fossils and, and, and astronomy. We can't count that because they believe the Bible. But you, the, the, uh, the neutral and objective observer with no bias whatsoever, who just looks at the natural world and follows the evidence wherever it goes, really? Really? That's, that's the one that we're supposed to, right? right? If, if, if I don't quote the atheist cosmologist, then I can't quote the Christian cosmologist because that doesn't count. He believes in God. Who's biased now? See, I'm a presuppositionalist. I stand in the authority of God's word. I stand on the Bible. Guess what? My job when I'm talking to the unbeliever is to prove that he's a presuppositionalist too. I stand on my Bible, but you got to be kidding if you think you're not standing on yours. His ultimate God-denying authority is his Bible. He has a faith commitment at his foundation, and I want to expose that and show, show it for the foolishness that it is. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Answer, yes, he has. And that's the confidence we should have. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time, and I hope that wasn't too loud. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God.
I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.